Welcome to the drdavidmarlin.com Stable Science Podcast. I'm Dr. David Marlin, and along with a great team of experts, I'm helping horse owners and riders achieve optimal performance for their much-loved horses. In these podcasts, we will discuss science-led research, technology, information, and advice to help you care for your horses so they may live healthier, happier, and longer lives. To support the podcast and all our research and science for horses, go to our website, www.drdavidmarlin.com, and to learn more about what we do and the hot topics under discussion, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, and welcome to this podcast by me, Dr. David Marlin, about stress in horses and riders. And we're going to talk a little bit about each individually, and then we're going to talk about how stress can affect both. Nowadays, when we hear the word stress, we think of probably mainly negative things such as anxiety, pressure, depression, insecurity, strain, exhaustion, uh, risk, reaction. Not We don't tend to look at stress as a positive thing, but actually, as we're going to explore in this podcast, it can be positive. And as a physiologist, when I think of stress, I think of really three different types of stress. I think of stress in the conventional sort of psychological way that we we think of it, uh, probably most commonly, such as the stress caused to a horse by isolation from other horses or from restriction of feed. But I also think of it in terms of uh, physical stress loading of the limbs which is the mechanism by which bone density increases bone strength increases but also physiological stress or metabolic stress that we get for example during exercise and again that's part of uh, allowing the the body to adapt and train and get fitter and better able to cope with uh, if we like stress and things that cause stress whether good or bad, we call stressors. 
And in the physical sense, this is the actual physical loading of the limb. In physiological uh, senses, it could be increased uh, heat production. And in psychological stress, it's we mentioned these already, isolation or feed restriction would be stressors. And the stressors can be internal within the horse, such as disease. They can be external uh, factors that affect different animals individually, such as, uh, for example, pollution or cold stress. And then there are external factors that affect horses uh, as a group, as perhaps a herd. And some of the, the types of stress we're familiar with that horses may experience, for example, within a herd, uh, there may be individuals that are lower down in the pecking order and they are subject to some degree of, of stress because of that. Isolating horses with no uh, ability to interact with other horses we know can cause stress. We think of heat stress, transport stress, cold stress. Chronic illness is a, is a stress as well on the body. Um, obesity, weaning, exercise, uh, types of uh, specific types of exercise that, for example, hyperflexion, and we may see this if stress is is too much or, or to uh, the wrong type of stress may result in stress related behaviours such as wind sucking, crib biting, or uh, illness such as gastric ulceration. Now, the interesting thing is that this idea of stress is actually quite, in terms of certainly psychological stress, is uh, is quite a recent phenomenon. And in terms of its use in physiology, particularly when we think of probably the fight or flight response, uh, the this was first used only around 1914 by a physiologist called Walter Cannon. Now, there's been lots of written about... Uh, stress and what it means to for example to people Um, and one quote I like comes from a paper by uh, Lazarus uh, et al 1985 who said the capabilities to meet mitigate or alter these demands in the interest of well-being i.e our view is that stress lies not in the environmental input but in the person's appraisal of the relationship between that input and its demands and the person's agendas, e.g. beliefs, commitments, goals, and capabilities to meet, mitigate, or alter these demands in the interest of well-being. Now, the fight-or-flight response, which we're all familiar with, is mediated by our sympathetic nervous system. And it's when we are shocked by something uh, for example, if we step out into the road and we need to get hit by a car, um, then we have a very specific type of response. And that is the sort of, it's a, a very deep-seated uh, response that comes from thousands and thousands of years of evolution to something that is potentially dangerous to And in, in, you know, millions of years ago, this could have been uh, being challenged by an animal that was about to eat us. Um, you know, we were literally fighting for our lives. And the sympathetic nervous system is part of what we call the autonomic nervous system. So it's the nervous system that is uh, what the autonomic nervous system is doing 
is it's taking care of all our bodily functions without us being really a necessarily aware of them although of course sometimes we, we are aware for example if the sympathetic nervous system accelerates our heartbeat we, we are aware of that response but if it's for example um, it, it's changing our GI function or it's uh, inhibiting the bladder contraction we're not really aware of that response but autonomic automatic if you like it's it's what's going on and we're not aware of and it's divided into two halves essentially the the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system and these tend to work uh, in to, like, together and usually where one has a positive effect the other has a negative effect for example the sympathetic nervous system increases the heart rate whereas the parasympathetic usually slows the heart rate the sympathetic nervous system in in people and horses dilates the airways but the parasympathetic constricts so stress fight or flight response and exercise interestingly are all mediated by the sympathetic nervous system and so if we were to look at the effects of stress for example increase in heart rate increase in blood pressure increase in respiratory rate increase in body temperature increase in adrenaline increase in cortisol endorphins decreased immune function decreased short-term memory remember that one these are all the same responses we get if we have a fight or flight response and the same responses that the body has to exercise so let's have a look at one aspect of this let's look at the hormonal response to stress exercise uh, or fight or flight response so we have the three sometimes called stress hormones um, i'm not sure i particularly like that that term but it does it is used um Adrenaline increases the heart rate, increases muscle glycogen breakdown, makes energy available for exercise. Cortisol also increases blood glucose and suppresses non-essential functions. Um, endorphins act on our opiate receptors, so these reduce pain and boost pleasure. Now, adrenaline's a really interesting one in particular because during exercise... Uh, adrenaline is incredibly important for explosive activity and if we were to compare the levels of adrenaline circulating in the blood of say a human sprinter and a horse racing in a five furlong race the level of adrenaline in the horse would be around 10 times higher than in the human athlete and adrenaline is what gives us that feeling when we have when we're kind of excited or we're hyped up or when we have had a nasty shock like we almost uh, let's say fall over uh, the edge of a cliff um, or we almost get hit by a car we get that feeling of uh, heart racing feeling really sick dry mouth that is all driven by adrenaline and Interestingly, adrenaline is affected by climate. In very cold conditions and very hot conditions, the amount of adrenaline circulating in our body is much higher, and the same for the horse. And in fact, if we look at all those three stress hormones in horses, 
after cross country in 30 degrees compared to 20 degrees centigrade, we would find that adrenaline would be around twice as high. Cortisol would be around one and a half times as high. And endorphins would be three times higher in the heat compared to in cooler conditions. Now, how we respond to stress depends on really how severe that stress is and how long it's applied for. So with a short-term stress, we, uh, we get a response, uh, our stress level goes up, but then if the stress is removed or it's not particularly severe, then we, get, we recover from that. But if the stress is uh, applied, uh, is a very high level of stress, then we may not get recovery. Or if it's a lower level of stress, but actually that stress is never removed and it's applied for a long time, perhaps hours, days, weeks, then we get chronic stress. And if we are stressed too often with sufficient time to recover, then we also can develop chronic stress. So too much, too often or too long can lead to chronic stress. And as I say, in terms of performance, function, health, learning, we do require some degree of stress in order to be able to survive. So this is where we can think of this idea of perhaps good stress and bad stress. So exercise is a good stress. We've talked about the sort of things that occur uh, when the, the, the body exercises, uh, things like increasing heart rate, increasing body temperature. Um, some of the things we might consider that are not quite so desirable, a decrease in immune function and a decrease in short-term memory. But in general, physiological or metabolic stress is the key to physical and physiological adaptation to repeated bouts of exercise, which we call training, and an increase in fitness, which in turn results in an increase in performance. The problem that we have in particular with the body is that we have all these different systems that we are stressing at the same time. So the joints, the muscles, the tendons, the heart, the skeleton, the lungs, but they don't necessarily all respond to stress in the same way. So tendons, skeleton, joints require very little training and are easily overloaded and therefore they're at a higher risk of injury. At the other end of the scale we've got the heart and the skeletal muscles, the locomotory muscles and remembering the heart is a special type of muscle. These require significant training and they are often undertrained, and they're also usually at a lower risk of injury. And then we have actually, interestingly, the respiratory system, which sits in the middle uh, and doesn't actually require any training and doesn't respond to training. So in terms of physical stress, there is a, a, a certain amount we need for the body to adapt in order to get the training response, the increase in fitness and the increase in performance. But of course, if we apply too much stress too quickly, then we end up with uh, potentially injury or illness. And, and dorsal metacarpal disease, sore shins in young horses, is a sign of too much stress. It's the, uh, 
dorsal metacarpal disease, sore shins, is the body's response to the bone being overloaded faster than it can actually adapt normally. So in the next part of the podcast, I'm going to talk about how we measure stress or its effects. And probably most of you are immediately thinking of effects of, uh, say, on behaviour. If a horse is stressed, we may be able to pick that up with, with, by looking at behaviour. Also, health. If we have a large group of horses that are all, all have gastric ulcers, then there is something common there within that environment affecting health, some level of management or stress that is uh, making all those horses prone to gastric ulceration. We can also measure uh, hormonal responses, as we've already seen, that adrenaline and cortisol uh, and endorphins are related to the degree of stress. The important thing here is that the adrenaline actually is released very quickly, but also disappears very quickly. And it's quite hard to use adrenaline to measure stress uh, unless we have a catheter and are able to continuously take blood. For example, we might do that during a a treadmill exercise. But things like cortisol, which change much more slowly, are probably uh, much more valuable in terms of assessing stress responses in animals. Immunity is also good because we know that uh, high levels of stress, chronic stress, result in decreased immunity. And then, of course, finally, we have physiological measurements as indicators of stress such as heart rate uh, a particular type of analysis of heart rate called heart rate variability sweating uh, and something new that i'm going to talk about which is called spontaneous blink rate heart rate variability is uh, is an interesting tool because it's non-invasive it can be obtained from an ecg or possibly from a heart rate monitor It's something that's been around for about now 60, 70 years, probably. And the idea is that even though your heart rate, if you look at a heart rate monitor, might not be appearing to change very much from sort of uh, time to time. Usually heart rate monitors give you a reading of your heart rate every five seconds or 15 seconds or every minute. And if you were to sit watching, having a look at the output from your heart rate monitor, you might get the impression that your heart rate's not changing. But interestingly, there are small changes going on. So, for example, in a a normal unstressed person, their heart rate on a beat-by-beat basis might go 42, 43, 42, 39, 42. Whereas in a stressed person it might well be have less variability and sort of be going 42, 41, 41, 42. Now, over time, if you were looking at those two heart rates of a stressed and unstressed person or horse, they might actually appear in absolute terms, the average heart rate to be very similar. But if we were to use specific tests of how much it's varying called heart rate variability we might be able to see that the 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 stressed individual actually has less variability in their heart rate and heart rate variability has been used a lot in horses more and more uh, it's becoming popular it's been used to study pre-race anticipation in standard breads it's been used to look at the stress associated with euthanasia of horses 
there was a study a couple of years ago that looked at the effect of aromatherapy on equine heart rate variability and they found that lavender actually uh, had a, a positive effect. Uh, it's been used to look at the, the matching or pairing of horses and riders um, and it's also been used in looking at hyperflexion. Some studies suggested that uh, there was an indication of poor welfare based on heart rate variability, uh, but some studies found that there was no effect. And moving on, I talk about spontaneous blink rate because in human uh, sort of psychology and medicine, this has been uh, something that was developed and it's considered that if you're under stress uh, and particularly with neurologically demanding stimuli. So if I was to say to you, what's what's seven plus 12 times 32 minus six? That is not uh, visually demanding, but it is a form of stress. Um, math stress is quite well known. And that would tend to increase blinking rate. Whereas if when you are doing demanding tasks, particularly stressful in terms of visual stimuli, if you're being asked to look at a lot of pictures and sort them, then that would be something that, that would be considered generally to decrease your blinking rate. And there are a few horses of what's called spontaneous blink rate in, in horses. Uh, one of the studies was uh, from 2016 by Robert Zetal uh, called Neuromodulators of Temperament, a multivariate approach to personality trait identification in the horse. And what they suggested was that anxiety was associated with higher spontaneous blink rate, whereas being docile was associated with lower spontaneous blink rate. And it was also used in a, a study where they looked at uh, the stress response to uh, clipping. And they pretended to clip horses for 10 minutes uh, by holding the, cl the clippers close to the horse uh, and, and moving them, but actually without, cut, uh, without clipping the, the coat. And they found that in the first uh, sort of 60 seconds, there was a decrease in spontaneous blink rate from about 10 to 8 blinks per minute. And over the whole 10 minutes, there was an increase in spontaneous blink rate from 9 to 14 blinks per minute. Now, a, a sort of a more comprehensive study was published uh, last year. And this was uh, from a group in Canada. Uh, Katrina Murkies and her co-workers and they extended this a little bit more and they looked at they, they defined full blinks where the eyelid closed fully self-explanatory half blinks and eyelid twitches uh, and they did this all of these studies really so far have been doing this by video in the horse's eye and then playing the back slowly and counting and they then exposed horses to different types of stress, three different types of stress, in fact. The, the first was feed restriction, the second was separation, and the third was a startle test. So that would be something like opening, suddenly opening an umbrella in front of a horse. And they compared this to the, uh, the, the blink rate when the horse was uh, not being stressed. And what they saw was... 
for the full blinks that there was a reduction from around about nine blinks per minute to around sort of five to four blinks per minute when horses were stressed by feed restriction, separation or startle test. And so it wasn't actually very different. What they saw was that horses actually have uh, a lot more half blinks. In fact, a sort of around 14 compared to around nine per minute when the unstressed state. But similar to the full blinks, they also saw a reduction with uh, these, these stress tests that they applied to the horses. And interestingly, eyelid twitches were not as common, um, and but there was a, a small increase uh, in eyelid twitches as horses were stressed. So the key thing here that, that's really interesting is in these different stress tests, if you like, or challenges, there was no change in the heart rate. And this sort of... Uh, underpins what we've known for a long time that simply measuring heart rate isn't always or often isn't a very good indicator of stress we have to look for other techniques to try and understand stress in horses such as salivary cortisol such as heart rate variability and possibly this new technique spontaneous blink rate so just in this last part of the podcast, I want to talk about stress in riders and stress in horses and how the two may relate and why we should be concerned or why we should give some consideration to this. So assessing stress in people is actually pretty straightforward. Um, there's a number of different techniques we can use. One of these is called the perceived stress scale. It's something that's been around uh, since the 1980s. Um, Cohen was one of the first people to publish on this and it's in, in the original form it's just a 10 question uh, questionnaire with uh, where people are asked for example in the last month how often have you been upset because of something that happened unexpectedly and you have to give a score of naught, never one almost never two sometimes three fairly often and four very often and you can then score uh, the, the, the responses of someone. And basically, there is tables for expected responses. So the average response uh, for, for males compared to females, it, males is 12 point, a score of 12.1 is the average score, and a score for female is 13.7. Um, there are also different scores for age. So, for example, 18 to 29-year-olds on average would score 14. It'd be expected to score 14, where 65-year-olds would be expected to score 12. So, in this uh, scale, the the higher the score, the uh, the greater the level of, of, of stress is, is considered to be. But... As we said, stress isn't always a bad thing. And if we look at stress and human athletic performance in a study published in 1997 by Sega uh, called A Measure of Stress for Athletic Performance, they found that in tennis and gymnastics, which are solitary individual athletic sports, they found that higher stress scores before competition correlated with better performance. 
But interestingly, when they looked at a, a team sport, in this case basketball, they found that the higher the stress scores, the worse the performance. So what about stress in horses and riders? We often talk about the idea that if we're stressed, we may well communicate that to our horses. Well, there was a study that was published looking at uh, three-day event riders and their horses where they measured salivary cortisol. Uh, this was a, a study, I can't even pronounce the, the name of the first author. Oh, well, I, I, I can pronounce it, but I can't, probably can't pronounce it correctly. Uh, Strezelek, I think, S-T-R-Z-E-L-E-C. Um, and they found that there was an increase in horse salivary cortisol. Remember cortisol, the higher the cortisol, the higher the level of stress. There was a, an increase in cortisol after the dressage, a small increase, a bigger increase after the cross country and a sort of intermediate increase after the show jumping. Interestingly, they found pretty much the same thing in the riders. But in absolute terms, the, the levels in the riders were much higher than the horses. But if we look at the percentage increase after the cross country, the, the were very similar for both the horse and the rider. Now, we have to be careful interpreting this, but it, it does suggest that, you know, maybe... Uh, although the rider is less probably physically stressed than the horse, you know, maybe the experience is uh, very similar for both the horse and the rider in terms of how they perceive what's happening. Now, another interesting study is, uh, was by uh, Linda Keeling from the University of Uppsala in Sweden, uh, Swedish Agriculture University, and their study was called investigating horse human interactions the effects of a nervous human and essentially what they were looking at was whether riders can transmit their stress to their horses so in order to look at this they had a group of horses and these were led uh, not ridden they these were led down a 30 meter track uh, four times up and down and they measured the heart rates of the horses and of the handler but what they did, which is quite interesting, was between the third and the fourth time, they told the handler that somebody was going to startle the horse at the end. Now, what they saw the first pass was that both the, the horse and the rider had uh, quite elevated heart rates. But on the second and third pass, the heart rates dropped down. They were much lower. But when the rider, when, sorry, when the handler was told between the third and the fourth pass that the horse was going to be startled, both of their heart rates actually increased. So the rider, the, keep saying rider, I'm sorry, the handler was, uh, was more anxious as reflected in their heart rate because they expected something to happen. But also, even though the horse didn't know the handler had managed to transmit this uh, their anxiety to the horse. And they then extended this to the horses being ridden. And guess what? They found exactly the same thing. That the when the, the, the rider was told that something was going to happen, they their heart rate was increased, and this was also reflected in an increased heart rate in the horse. 
So, what about stress and learning? Now, from studies in people, we know that stress can have a variable effect on learning depending on when that stress occurs. So, if you're stressed all the time, that tends to have a negative effect on your memory. But if you are, uh, if you experience some sort of uh, stress at the time of trying to learn something, then a small degree of stress is actually enhances memory. And similarly, when you're trying to consolidate that memory, uh, a little bit of stress is positive. But if you are trying to retrieve that information and you're stressed, then you will perform worse. And if you are trying to, uh, what we call, update uh, your, uh, your memories, then that will have a negative effect if you are stressed. And it's possible the same applies to horses. So uh, Christensen from Denmark at the International Society for Equitation Science Conference uh, in 2018, this is a quote from her, and she said, Optimal learning, however, requires slightly elevated arousal levels acutely beyond which learning is inhibited. So now for arousal, we can actually read stress. So what this is saying is if your horse isn't a little bit uh, aroused in term or, or a little bit stressed, then you are less likely to get uh, an optimal learning experience. And this is also often referred to as the Yerkes-Dodson law. So where we have, uh, if you are too relaxed, you have too low level of arousal, your ability to learn is low. If you have a moderate level of arousal, your learning ability is maximized. But if you are anxious, then your learning is compromised. And this should apply to horses and riders. Um, because when we have a high level of arousal or a high level of stress, essentially there is competition for attention between whatever the stimuli are that are causing stress and whether that's pain or whether that's something flapping in the arena and the person who's trying to, to train the horse, the rider um, or, or the trainer. Another feature of this law is that you can uh, reasonably well uh, perform simple tasks under moderate to high levels of stress but if it's a complex task then in order to optimize that you need the level of stress to be reduced and so the way we should think about this is if there's too much stress in our horse's environment and whether that's when we're riding them or training them or not then it's likely that when we try to do things with them the poorer the learning outcome and the poorer the performance so if your horse doesn't like other horses uh, being outside the arena when you're uh, schooling if your horse doesn't like the shadow area in the arena we tend to sort of you know try and make the horse get over those things but actually that may not be positive because that could well be distracting your horse uh, particularly if you're trying to get the horse to do a complex task so 
in summary, stress is not always a bad word, especially for, for me as a physiologist. It's essential for increasing fitness. But we do have a problem where we're perhaps trying to teach horses to do things or we want to get horses to perform in that if there is too much distraction, if there is too much stress, then that could be negative in terms of learning and in performance. But remember also that we need to have some degree of stress or arousal in terms of maximising learning opportunities. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and the Stable Science series. If you want to learn more about this topic and our work, head over to the drdavidmarlin.com website. Our website and community of members discuss a wide breadth of topics and the website houses thousands of articles, webinars, videos and research, all designed to help horse owners, riders, trainers and breeders achieve optimal performance for their much-loved horses. The drdavidmarlin.com site is an independent information resource for all equestrians, a source of unbiased, science-based research. To learn more about what we do and the hot topics under discussion, follow us on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter.